The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we are talking to Sandra Hyde, a licensed professional engineer and managing director of product development for the International Code Council, ICC, the product development group, as well as John Buddy Showalter, also a licensed professional engineer and a senior staff engineer with the International Code Council's Product Development Group. Sandra and Buddy authored a five-part series in Structure Magazine discussing significant structural changes to the 2021 International Building Code, and in this episode, they will tell us more about these significant changes and how it will affect structural engineers. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. And I'm your co-host, Kara Green. Now let's jump into our conversation of the week with Sandra and Buddy. This episode of the Structural Engineering Channel is brought to you by Collier's Engineering and Design. Collier's Engineering and Design is a multidisciplinary engineering firm with over 1,800 employees in 63 offices nationwide and growing fast. Collier's Engineering and Design maintains an internal culture that is nurtured through the promotion of integrity, collaboration, and socialization. Their employees enjoy hybrid work environments continuous career advancement, health and wellness offerings, and programs and projects that have a positive impact on society. Collier's Engineering and Design stays on the cutting edge of technology, and their entrepreneurial approach to expansion provides personal and professional development opportunities across the firm. Leadership's dedication to the well-being of their employees and their families is demonstrated throughout the wide range of benefits and programs available to them. For more information, visit the career page on their website at colliersengineering.com. Sandra and Buddy, welcome to the show. In your own words, could you both please tell our listeners about yourselves and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Maybe, Sandra, you can start us off. On a day-to-day basis, I end up looking at whatever questions happen to come in that people are asking about the code. So it might be on the 2021, 2018, 2015, 2012, who knows? It might be the IRC or the IBC or the IEBC. I might be working on a book that we're producing to talk about changes to the code I might be working on review of somebody else's books that want to have the ICC logo or have us publish them, or I might be teaching. How about you, buddy? So very similar. Sandra and I work in the same product group here at ICC. Sandra is the veteran. I'm the rookie. And so I'm learning a lot from her. So I help with those uh, support documents as well. And we develop a lot of training materials that we use to take out then into the field to teach code officials primarily. Our audience is pretty wide, building officials, fire officials, engineers, architects, uh, even builders will show up for our programs. 
I came to ICC three years ago from the American Wood Council, where I was involved with developing the mass timber provisions. And so that's sort of a niche within ICC, where I am the point person for tall mass timber. For any of the students that aren't too familiar with ICC, International Code Council, once you get into the industry, for sure, you will be using a lot of their resources. So you might as well get familiar with them now. Sandra, I wanted to ask you about how did you decide to become an engineer and what habits have proven helpful to you? I was a middle school and high school math and science teacher and said, I'm kind of bored with what I'm doing and I'd like to make houses safer in an earthquake. So that in my 30s was how I decided to go back to school, get an engineering degree and along the way have managed to find a niche where I can actually help make building safer in an earthquake. As far as students, for me, engineering was not something I had anybody in my life that they did it. And so I knew it. And so I really think when you find something that's interesting to you, you need to find some people who do it and ask them to actually see what they do. It's by far the easiest way to get a glimpse into what happens within the world, whatever job you're looking for. It really is okay to just ask people, even though it's scary, to do so. It's interesting that you bring up that you were a teacher beforehand, because I um, used to work with a guy who was a teacher before he became an engineer. When I first started in design, I had a supervisor and she was actually a teacher and then went back, I think in her early 30s after she had her first two kids and got her engineering degree. And uh, that was also her kind of path to success in engineering. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think also, Matt, we've talked to someone else who had a similar story a couple episodes back. I'm blanking on her name, but it's so interesting that that is a common path. So Sandra, if you don't mind, what made you decide to work for ICC specifically rather than I work for a manufacturer and Matt works for a design firm? So I worked for Warehouser slash Trust Choice slash iLevel first, and the university I was at didn't have a lot of research going on. I wanted to do research, so I went to Warehouser, did the research, found that, ooh, that day-to-day do the same thing, tested again and again, for me was very tedious, and I actually didn't know what I was going to be doing next, but I got laid off in 2009 in the midst of cycle after cycle of layoffs. ICC actually contacted me to ask if I would do some review of work. And I did that the same time I happened to get my PE license and they liked my reviews well enough that they asked if I would join our group that works on writing, which I had never done before. And because the job is so varied in what you do day to day, I have loved it for more than 10 years now. Everyone tries to find that position where they're challenged every day. And each of us is different and we find it in our different ways. And it goes to show that most young engineers think, oh, I'm going to be a design engineer, you know, if they go in the structural engineering field. As we've proven time and time again, there's so many fields in structural engineering where you can get that. You may not like the design field. Maybe you might want to try something else. And there's so many career paths. So thanks for sharing that, Sandra. Buddy, I know you're working on some mass timber stuff, at least in the industry, even in Southern California, that's been picking up a lot. And I know you've been working on that. Could you explain to our listeners that aren't too familiar with mass timber, what it is and how they can get more familiar with it? In our country, 
if you've been to some restaurants that may have been turned over from an old mill building into restaurant that had these big, massive, heavy timber members inside the building, a lot of old mills and buildings back in the day were built, is been known throughout the trade as heavy timber. And those types of buildings have been in the building code for decades, literally since some of the very first building codes have been around. In Europe and Canada over the past uh, few decades, I guess, they, with the advent of a product called cross-laminated timber, they've been able to take these buildings even bigger, taller, and, and larger because of new technology. Engineered wood products are making it easier to build larger mass timber products that can be used in these applications. Around 2015, 2016, the ICC Board of Directors appointed a task group, uh, an ad hoc committee, to develop these new provisions in the U.S. Building Code. So in the 2021 IBC, we now have provisions for three new types of construction, type 4A, 4B, and 4C. And those are in addition to the what we call the legacy heavy timber provisions that are still there in the code. But with the three new types of construction, we can go taller, have larger areas. I had the opportunity to attend Structures Congress and Mass Timber was a very, very hot topic. And one of the things that was really interesting was, I'm not super familiar with Mass Timber, but my Canadian counterparts are. But one of the things that kept popping up was the fire safety around Mass Timber. What are some of the main fire safety requirements for mass timber types of constructions? I know with CLT, it may be different from just what would regularly be like a stick-built building. These new buildings, mass timber, heavy timber, are nothing like their stick-frame counterparts. And so there are two ways in the code to develop fire protection. One's active protection, one's passive protection. So active protection involves things like sprinklers. And so any of these buildings that are going to go taller and larger than our existing heavy timber buildings have to have an NFPA 13 sprinkler system to get those additional heights and areas. Additionally, the passive protection comes in the form typically of a fire-rated gypsum. And so for the new types of construction, gypsum will also be used to protect certain portions of the mass timber building elements. Mass timber also has an inherent fire resistance. And so we can design beam or a column, for example, or a CLT panel for a certain fire resistance, say one hour. And we can add additional non-combustible protection like gypsum to add additional time, say if we need a two or three hour assembly. So it's going to be a combination of active and passive protection, but these are all engineered design structures for uh, the new types of construction. Sandra, I wanted to change directions to the 2021 uh, load changes. I know that's a big topic and that's something that, you know, structural engineers are always interested in. Could you explain what those are? Well, first off, since we are in the second cycle of the IBC that's using ASCE 716, there are very few, which is good. We kind of like to see a, a code cycle where there aren't a huge number of changes. Probably the most useful but structural engineers can do that help everybody else in the process of building the building is that the component and cladding wind zones that you've got laid out since the wind zones, especially for flat buildings, change so much. 
we now have a requirement that you put those on the plan so that the person who's actually doing the nailing up of, say, the wood sheathing on the roof has a better sense of exactly where that should go, where that tighter nailing needs to be, where the looser spacing can be when you choose to do that. Another change that will only affect a narrow group of buildings, but is different than what we've had, was our risk category table has one style of building moving from risk category two to three. And that's our hotels that are very large with a conference center that's connected to them. Most of those hotels stay in risk category two, but when their conference center gets bigger than the hotel, they'll be moving to risk category three, just like normal assembly buildings. So that's, these are really big spaces, ones with multiple ballrooms of more than 300 people and a total of 2,500 plus in the multiple ballroom spaces. So not most of them, but that is new and different. Other more Minor changes are the snow maps becoming similar to ASCE 716 snow maps and the load combinations that we've always been able to find in the IBC or ASCE 7 are now just in ASCE 7 and only the alternate load combinations stay in the IRC. So don't worry when you don't see the others. It will tell you to go to ASCE 7. They didn't get wiped out. I'm guessing you've gotten asked that question before. Oh, yeah. Mostly it was the nailing patterns in the wood chapter, but yes. So you mentioned there are some small changes, but what about the changes to the structural observation and special inspections? So can you elaborate on those and explain how those changes in particular will affect structural engineers? Structural observation is going to be the big one. Previously, if you weren't in a high wind or high seismic area, there was no structural observation required. You could always add it, but it wasn't required. And there's been a concern that big arenas, your skyscrapers that are going in, if they weren't in a high seismic or high wind area, there was no big picture check that the structural frame was going up correctly. So we now have a requirement if it's a risk category three building, which means it holds a lot of people or risk category four building. So our emergency services, those will require no matter where you are in the country, a structural observation. So they'll have their normal building department inspection. They'll have special inspections for their materials, and then they'll add on that structural observation. That's just a third check. That's the biggest one. Mass Timber, of course, has some special inspections because it's very new construction and most people haven't seen it. There's tweaks to the fire stop and concrete special inspections that you'll see if you focus in those areas. Lastly, just for the building department, actually, less for structural engineers, when deep foundations are going in or going wrong, There was no requirement before that said for the building department that you will stop construction, you will bring out a geotech, and they'll evaluate what's going on. That's now in the code, too. And speaking of the codes, uh, Buddy, because I've always wondered, because I use the codes frequently at work, and I sometimes wonder how these codes even get written. Could you explain the process of what it takes and what the research it takes to develop these codes and how the codes even become codes or these new provisions get in there? Through the ICC process, we develop what are called model codes. And because of the way our country is structured, the enforcement of building codes and 
inspections is really at the grassroots level, at the local level. When ICC develops a national model code, then a a local jurisdiction would need to adopt that. That gives it the force of law. And then building officials who are appointed by local governments use that code to inspect and, and do plan check for buildings. The process within ICC is a three-year cycle. There's a whole family of codes, more than a dozen different codes. The most familiar for structural engineers are going to be the International Building Code, the International Residential Code, to a certain extent, maybe the Fire Code. Committees and individuals, structural engineers associations can come to the code change. They can propose a code change. Anyone can propose a code change. Then there are a series of hearings, first committee hearings, and then public comment hearings, and then the membership of ICC does a final vote on all the new provisions that have been proposed and work their way through that process. After every three-year cycle, then a new uh, series of codes are published. Then it's, again, up to the local jurisdictions to adopt those. And a lot of jurisdictions don't adopt every three years, might be on a six-year cycle or even longer. We have in U.S., if you were to look at a map, just a lot of different states with a lot of different codes. That makes our job interesting because when we go out to teach, we don't know whether we're teaching the new 2021 or 2018 or 2015 codes. And so we've got this whole library of programs to teach depending on which version of the code is in force. What you were saying, even with the whole process of just getting code changes, now you got to think about the local jurisdiction, which takes precedence. And what are they using? Do they even take the latest codes up or are they working in on older codes? So yeah, that's very interesting to see how that whole process gets done. One thing that's also really interesting, and Matt, maybe you can provide some input, is that some engineering offices adopt like the 2021 code across all of their offices, regardless of jurisdiction. And so sometimes they're designing to a code in like the 2018 building code, which I think is the one I'm most familiar with when it's like a 2015 is the jurisdictional. It's really interesting how those types of things overlap. Yeah, even for engineers, it's different because we always have to go to what ICC goes through because we always have to go. We're at the mercy of the local jurisdictions as well. So we always change codes too. Yeah, and everyone wants to build these mass timber buildings, which are 2021, but they don't necessarily want to adopt the 2021 building code at the jurisdictional level. It's interesting. So, Buddy, since you do have so much experience with, you said you worked for the American Wood Council before you joined with ICC, how do mass timber buildings compare to concrete or steel buildings? All these materials have a place in lots of different applications. And from a safety standpoint, when the committee developed the mass timber provisions, they keyed the fire safety or fire resistance ratings. If you're familiar with Table 601 of the code, it establishes the fire ratings for different building elements. So for the three new types of construction, they keyed Type 4, the new provisions, to Type 1 construction, Type 1A and 1B. And so the fire protection for primary structural elements, for example, for Type 4A is three hours comparable to Type 1A construction. There are similarities there in, in the sense that fire protection requirements are comparable. The height limits and area limits are going to be different. We can only go up to 18 stories and 270 feet. 
with mass timber, whereas a lot of your concrete and steel buildings in type one can, you know, are unlimited. Nonetheless, this is a, a big step for the wood products industry being able to go beyond six stories and 85 feet, which is what, what our limit for heavy timber. A lot of times we get questions about cost. What's the cost differential? Well, you can't just say compare a precast concrete panel with a CLT panel and, and stop there because where the real cost savings occurs is with the construction time, which is greatly reduced. The weight of the materials is greatly reduced, which means your foundation systems are smaller and the labor required is greatly reduced. So if you look at big picture, you know, from start to finish with the construction process, that's where the industry is finding that mass timber really has some huge potential. Plus folks like architects who are interested in the green credits, uh, environmental performance, Wood sequesters carbon, and so there's a good environmental message there for wood products as well. Yeah, I think a big conversation just in the past couple of years has been sustainability and the carbon emissions reduction. I sat in on a case study. It was a building actually done in, I guess it was maybe Arkansas. And they shipped in all of the CLT panels from Austria, but they did the calculations on the CO2 emissions of just shipping all of the like cross laminated timber panels that they all just like connect together like Lincoln logs. They did that analysis against a concrete and steel construction and time it took to like recomp all of the carbon emissions would have just been like 22 years. And the service life of the building, I think was built out to like 50 or something like that. And they were like, yeah, by the time it like, it will essentially be sucking carbon out of the air by the end of its life cycle. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. It was really, it was a cool scenario to look through. And the other point to follow up on that is we now have domestic CLT manufacturers here in the U.S. So we're no longer shipping across the sea, which is an even better scenario. I was talking about this when I was at Structures Congress. I think there's a plant in Alabama. It's a new one. It used to supply, I don't know if y'all know international paper, but it was a paper mill. It was the same at forestry area. And I was like, I guess with everyone going to digital and removing their paper, they just like delved into a new market, which is cross-laminated timber. But I had a really good friend who worked at International Paper, and she was like, yeah, it's kind of odd because we're all going digital. She was like, I'm looking for something else. But I was like, I wonder what would impact that particular economy, because we also have these pine forests that are super quick growing pine in Alabama. And they have like a, I think it's maybe like a 15 to 20 year growth cycle. And they just make all sorts of woods. That was interesting when I saw that because I'm originally from Alabama. What you mentioned, buddy, I think one of the things that stood out to me when I was seeing uh, some photos of mass timber construction is the manpower needed to install those. It's basically one man on a crane and then maybe a couple people, maybe two or three people to just place it. That's all they need to construct it. So it's really interesting to see where mass timber is going and, and, you know, with the help of the codes, more and more acceptance of it. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes in maybe the next five years. My last question for Sandra is uh, still code related, uh, but I just wanted to see, we talked about the structural observations and some of the significant changes. Were there any maybe less significant changes that were going in terms of concrete, steel, masonry, and wood requirements? Since so much of our code requirements for the various materials are now in the material standards, 
the big things in the IBC are simply a reference to a new standard. So we have a new reference for ACI 318 will be the 2019 edition. For the first time, we have concrete tolerances directly referenced in the code. So for cast-in-place concrete, ACI 117 is now being referenced. And for precast concrete, it's ITG 7. So tolerances that we never had before you had to go out to the concrete standards and then go from there are directly referenced. In steel, similarly, we have AISC 358 for the pre-qualified connections for seismic requirements. That's actually directly referenced as well. And then in wood, we just are updating our um, special design provisions reference to the 2021 code. So all of that is just code references off to standards. Smart. Yeah, let them handle it, right? (laughs) Their own code committees. It's been the way we've been going for a couple decades. Buddy and Zandra, to end off here, could both of you share some final advice that we could give to young engineers starting off in their career, or maybe to our professionals and engineers maybe looking to pivot a little bit in their career? Since we started with you, Sandra, maybe we'd go with Buddy first. My advice would be get out onto the job site. It's nice. A lot of us have been working from home. We have this nice little comfortable place where we can do our work and do Zoom meetings or whatever. But Getting out to the job site, seeing how the design actually is implemented in the field, all the different inspections that are happening and issues that builders are dealing with in the field and the impact that your tolerances have on that whole construction process is a really, really valuable part of your growth in the field and really becoming a better engineer just from the standpoint of knowing how to to practically design things that can be easily implemented in the field. I completely agree. The most common problem in construction is that people aren't talking to one another and don't realize that something that they think is going to work nicely actually doesn't work. The other thing would be just don't be afraid to try new things, whether it's saying, okay, sure, I'll take this project at work, or it's something outside of work, a committee that you can be on an activity you go do, the more you try new things, the quicker you'll find out what you enjoy doing the most. I think that is great advice to any of our listeners. Specifically, I think getting out on the job is so important because you're right. Everything looks really great in a 2D or a 3D model, but actual application on a project sometimes just screams like not knowing the application, how you designed it. And then Sandra, yeah, trying new things. Me and Matt talk all the time about kind of putting yourself out there and doing different things just to get the experience. I think it's also good just to find out if you actually like doing something or maybe not. So I think that's amazing feedback to our listeners. I definitely agree with all those and can definitely relate to um, instructional engineering. We'll do a pretty sketch, send it out to the field. And then I was like, well, this is what we're... (laughs) This it's not going to work. And then, yeah, a lot of it can be resolved by either going out to the field or even just a phone call, that communication that you were talking about. See what they're going through, throw out some solutions. They might have better solutions since they are out in the field and they work with it every day. So just having that uh, communication, especially for young engineers, just get on the phone and go talk to them. It'll save you a lot of headaches. That's so great advice. And I just wanted to thank both of you for all that you do. And it definitely affects the building industry and structural engineers in general. 
Thanks for their time. And thanks for this great conversation. I learned a lot. Thanks for having us today. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 79, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.